Looking to create wealth and income through high cash flowing real estate? Self-storage is the fastest growing and the newest real estate asset that has outperformed all others. What's its secret? I'm AJ Osborne, and with over a million square feet that we have built, acquired, expanded, and even converted big box stores from small third-tier markets to large hundred plus thousand square foot facilities, we have seen it all. This is the podcast that we're going to discuss and bring on the best investors and operators in the nation to show you how to create wealth and income with self-storage. Welcome to Self-Storage Income. Hey, everybody. Before our interview starts, I wanted to give you guys uh, kind of a heads up and an intro. This is a longer podcast than we've done. It is just filled with gold. And I need to tell you why this is really important. The guy that we're interviewing today, if you've seen Storage Wars, and, you know, this is the guy that started that. Um, You know, he was the guy that really brought auctions online. Um, He's developing lots of different softwares, uh, systems within the storage world, and he owns um, store. Uh, he owns, I think, twelve storage facilities now. He's been in the business for a long time. He's done everything from shipping containers. Very influential in this industry. Um, he's a thought leader. Um, he's really moved the needle for the industry as a whole. Um, so it, it, this is a must listen to. I wanted to do this intro, intro before we got started, though, because. When I when I did this interview, I was with him down in California. There they have a new um, a tech company that they're starting in the storage industry, and so I was down there with them. We're outside, um, and we're on a microphone. So the quality isn't a hundred percent. It's still really good, but we are outside. So keep that in mind. Um, this is with Lance Watkins. It is a fabulous interview. I'm, I'm really excited. I've been waiting for this one for a long time. Um, and it gives you an inside look that a lot of people do not get into this industry. Um, it is, and it is a totally different understanding of how our industry works and to where it's going. And this is important, whether you're in it now or starting to get to, to have this thought practice of where this industry is going to be in 10 years, this is that interview. So I'm not talking anymore. Without any further ado, we'll get started and roll it out. And you guys are going to love this interview with Lance Watkins. All right. Welcome everybody to self-storage income. This is a little different format than we've done before. Um, I am actually in Southern California. Um, and I'm down, I'm down here working with, a. Uh, Tenant Inc. I don't want to really actually go into it uh, because it'll it'll play into the, the podcast and the interview coming up because we have a great one today. Um, in the self-storage world, I think most of the time it's dominated by real estate owners, investors, and operators. Why? Because it's a real estate asset class. But the industry has changed so much and it's been dominated by technology, which is giving huge advantages to some in the marketplace and changes the way that the, we find tenants, tenants operate within us, we manage our facilities, on and on and on. So that's why this podcast is so important and so special. Today, we have with us Lance Watkins, and he is not only a storage owner and uh, operator, he has also started up several 
tech companies within the self-storage world, including the largest self-storage association. And let's jump right in and we'll get into his uh, background. So Lance, thanks for coming on. Thank you, AJ. So um, why don't you kind of give us a little background of how you got into storage and uh, where you started out? You know, it's a good story because, oh, 20 some years ago, I um, had one of the first and few and only jobs I'd ever had in my life because I was typically pretty entrepreneurial and didn't really see myself being employed for that long. And I was very fortunate. I had three great mentors, um, one in Florida, one in Texas, and one in California. So I decided to pack up, go talk to all three of them about some of the ideas I had for how I was going to spend the next 20 years. And um, I was always attracted to commercial real estate development, and I felt like that that was the path I wanted to take. Went and talked to all three of these gentlemen who had varying backgrounds and some real estate, some a little, some a lot. But interestingly enough, all of them mentioned self-storage. And that was the commonality between the three of them. Um, and it happened to be that they were just randomly, not not uh, that they were heavily in the storage business, uh, although I guess, I guess one was uh, significantly in, but they were in the three largest states at the time, Texas, Florida, and California, which are still the three largest states for, for storage. So the, the mentor of mine that was in Southern California pointed me towards a project that was close to Newport Beach, close to John Wayne Airport. It's no longer there. It's now a, a lumber yard or something, but uh, uh, a really nice lumber yard. But uh, it was a land lease and it was shipping containers. And that was the first point of due diligence. I knew absolutely nothing about the industry. I went off and found some people that were doing a, a sort of half-assed job at land leases and shipping containers put together a business plan to approach Southern California Edison, which was the largest landowner in California, and proceeded to do 65-year ground leases, uh, went to China, uh, created a contract and a methodology to get new shipping containers brought to Southern California at no cost, and started developing self-storage. So a couple things here before we dive, dive any more. We are actually outside at Lance's house, which is amazing because it's probably snowing at my house right now. And so it's beautiful weather down here in Southern California. And if, you know, in the self-storage world, when you talk about, when was this? Like, how long ago was this? Uh, this was in 97 that I started. Okay, 97 they started. So self-storage was around, but oh, it yeah. wasn't, you know, Technology hadn't entered in, we'll just say, no, to Google, the self-storage. Google had not entered yes. in. The smartphone had not Exactly. In. So it was tra just traditional people moving in. You're putting your stuff in. You pay rent. And that's about as sophisticated as it gets. So, yeah, technology had not entered um, the industry then. And marketing self-storage, uh, well... <laughs> Looking back on it, it truly was a build it and they will come because in all honesty, um, you, you really couldn't make a mistake. There was more demand than supply. Uh, it was an industry that was overlooked by most real estate professionals. It wasn't seen as a, as a 
as a really attractive real estate asset class. Um, it started off as a really as a land bank, uh, rotated into a real estate asset class, then more became a little bit like um, uh, retail, and then um, has really taken its fourth position or generation where digital marketing is is now become the, the key to success in the space and technology and data. But back then your decisions were a double truck or a single page yellow page ad and color or not color and penny saver and arrow board or you know the guy that spins the arrow board out there on the on the corner or hangers on people's Okay, so let's walk a little through the numbers here on this first deal. How much did it cost to get into it? This is a land lease, so you didn't own the land, correct? Yeah, it was a 65-year ground lease. The first, I, I, I actually added a second phase in this. So currently it's 120,000, a little over 120,000 net rentable square feet on ground level, which it's containers. It would almost always be ground level. And the first phase was about 85,000, 87,000 square feet. Very first one I opened it it at least one percent a day. I was at ninety percent in ninety days. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. It's a little too easy. Yeah. But I actually feel bad talking to the audience about the good old days because it <laughs> Those... was that it was that easy. Yeah. <laughs> Those it's days. Way, it's not that gone. way anymore. Although the deal we just did in Reno, yep, wasn't too bad. But those are <laughs> those are a little bit more like unicorns these days. Yep. How much did you have into this deal when you opened your doors? How much did you put into it? I was I was into the containers about fourteen bucks a foot, and probably the the, the site prep about four bucks a foot. So it was really inexpensive. And yeah. the, the office, you know, all blended in. It was under twenty, but I mean, it was very it was very inexpensive. You can't reproduce those deals. They cash flow unbelievably. Yeah, um, I have one containerized of one containerized deal with some RP on it that that was the second one I actually built, not too far from that one, that I think today does about $2 million a year in, in uh, gross receipts. So those deals, again, those are the glory days. Yeah. So you have the second deal. How, long, how, much, how much longer after your first deal did you do your second deal? Almost immediately. Uh, I, was, I was pretty active. I probably built about... 18 projects, you know, in the first seven or eight years, which was pretty good for me because honestly, um, you know, fake it till you make it. I knew nothing about storage when I started. So your background now, you own 11 facilities now, uh, 13, 13 facilities. Now you own 13 facilities, but not only do you own 13 facilities, you also have started how many tech companies in the space? I don't know. Um, I have currently, uh, I'm the founder of a, uh, a company called Tenant. That's the most recent startup. I'm the founder of a company called Store Local, uh, which was founded about five or six years ago. Uh, it's a collective. And, and so, yeah, explain what um, Store Local is. So Store, Store Local is an, is an interesting company. And uh, it's a co-op. It's a it's a corporation. So the actual formation of Store Local is a result of, of how I saw the industry changing. And what happened 
is I was an early adopter into tech and technology and digital marketing. When, you know, Google started about the time I did, and I was probably similar to a lot of people that didn't really think that the, the internet would be very disruptive or really even mean that much to my business, but I decided to build a website when I had no idea how to build a website. And uh, I probably put so little energy and effort into it, although I was an extreme early adopter of having a website in the storage business, that I didn't really think much about it. And when I visit my stores and talk to my, my managers and, and talk about the, you know, where the business was coming from and the inbound leads, and it was, you know, it was always the, the phone book or the, you know, the, the local mailer that we did or something like that, or just drive by traffic in the, from the neighborhood. All of a sudden, that the, the answers were the internet, boss, the website, and that kept getting louder and louder, and more and more consistent early on. And I thought, wow, didn't really think this would mean much. So I invested in in building another website that was a little bit better, um, still pretty archaic in today's terms, and I found even a better return. Well. As that, as that progressed, I started really trying to understand the attribution and the cost per acquisition of our customers at a time where even the public companies weren't really exploring what the costs were because they had, you know, they had uh, uh, really just done business one way since they had started and, and it was pretty much yellow pages or nothing or maybe having a brand like public storage. And what I found is that the yellow pages where I was spending at the time between 450 and 500,000 a year, the, the return wasn't there. And I had stores, I had one store that had a $2,700 per acquisition cost through that channel, which in our business, that's a losing deal. It's a big losing deal. And so I actually pulled, I was one of the first large operators. And in this, in this industry, you can be a large operator with a million square feet. Uh, I was, the, the first large operator to completely pull out of the yellow pages. And when I did, I dove pretty hard into building much better websites, hiring better agencies. I definitely hired some agencies back then, did a combination of everything. Uh, but uh, I, was, I was either unfortunate or fortunate, depending on how you look at it, to end up with a film crew at my facility doing a news piece on the auctions. And it happened to be that I, I didn't permit that to happen. And I was actually pretty upset about it because I was concerned about exposing the auction process. But I happened to be the biggest news agency in, in Los Angeles at one of my LA stores. And the next day I expected a lot of tough calls from investors and customers and you know people saying how awful it is that we sell grandmas stuff out of her storage unit and it was just the opposite investors called me and said geez lance the facility looked great customers called me and said my gosh that's really interesting can i come to these auctions and i had a lot of calls and the other audience that saw that show was 35 producers in los angeles who at the time were all chasing the concept of a reality tv show in the industry and if you you may not remember, but at one point there were actually five reality TV shows airing at the same time, Auction Hunters and Storage Wars and, you know, I can't even remember the others uh, at this point, but 
Auction Hunters and Storage Wars were the first two successful ones. And then Storage Wars went on to sort of rewrite the history of reality TV. And for a number of years was the, the most successful reality TV show um, in existence. Well, it was, it was being produced by, it was being produced by A&E and a company called Original Productions that uh, had done Deadliest Catch and Ice Road Chuckers and Axemen and a whole bunch of testosterone TV. I, I thought it would fail. I thought they were the wrong producer to do the show. Uh, I did it purely as a, as a social media play to drive traffic to my website to create relevance for the online business that I was creating for, uh, for my portfolio. Well, resulting from that, that, that show, I realized there was large inefficiencies in our auction process that I never really paid attention to. And I founded a company called Storage Treasures, which in one year became the highest traffic website in the world in, in self-storage. We blew past public storage. And um, that brought out a lot of people wanting to partner because back then traffic meant something uh, to partner sites and links and a whole bunch of things that still have some relevance today, but back then were, were more valuable than they are today. And as these partners came to me, whether they were public companies or whether they were new tech startups, Silicon Valley or Texas or wherever they were from, they were sharing their vision of how they thought they could provide products and services to our industry. And I had suspicion about what was happening in our industry from a perspective of, of aggregation or consolidation, not aggregation, but consolidation. And so I was able to connect the dots and I realized that at the time, real property consolidation wasn't happening. In other words, you had, you had five public companies and they owned about 10% of the market share. And that just continued to be about 10% of the market share. So 90% were private companies like myself, you know, the mom and pops, and I'm a small operator. I was a top 100 operator. I was able to participate in, in larger owner groups, et cetera, et cetera. But what I realized early on, and this is going probably back about seven or eight years ago now, the hypothesis was that what was what was consolidating in our industry was the market share, the online market share. And it was consolidating disproportionately to the amount of real estate we owned. Meaning there were companies that owned no real estate that had a large percent of the online market share, or there were big companies like public storage at the time who owned 5% of all the real estate, but maybe, maybe they owned 25% of the online market share. It's disproportionate. And my concern was that once the online space was consolidated, that we would then see real property consolidation. We would then start to see the roll-ups of all the portfolios getting bought and the public companies getting larger and it becoming tougher to compete. And I tried to put a, a plan together to stay private, stay independent, and yet compete with the bigger companies. And I realized that the only way I was going to be successful doing that is if I could get a lot of people working together and through that through that due diligence phase we figured out that maybe a co-op was the was the the path to to create an organization and, and achieve that goal so this is um an important point first of all you're the reason the reality television shows for storage 
are around today, which is hilarious to me. So you got storage wars going on at the same time that you have really this boom in how the internet's affecting the industry and it's piggybacking, right? An event that's about to take place, which is the great recession, which seems like those things all together spurred this consolidation that you were afraid was going to happen. And you saw this and you thought, all right, I want to stay independent, obviously. And you've seen this happen in other industries. So how can we do this? You started a co-op where everybody could come together and have the resources and share like the big boys. Now, you, you during this time, though, too, you're still missing stuff because during this time, also, you had other tech companies, right? So before you started the co-op, you also had started... Started Storage Treasures. Storage Treasures. And explain what Storage Treasures is. So so Storage Treasures was really a different way of handling auctions. We, we, we were trying to democratize the auction process and take the auctions online to create some better efficiencies in not only for the bidders that are buying units, but for us as operators, being able to reach a, a greater bidder base, have people bid from further away. Uh, and not have the crowds at our facilities and, and all of the things that happen with the auctions that, you know, reality TV is, is um, depending on who's filming and what they're showing, um, can be very real or not very real. But some of the things that you have seen, if you've ever watched any of those reality shows like Storage Treasures in our industry, is pretty real. And it was, you know, there was a lot of people coming to our facilities, which from a management perspective, there's liability and it's a pain in the butt, et cetera, et cetera. So, so what we did is we, is, is we started a, a way to advertise the auctions and, and then we, we, we merged with another competitor and then we started holding um, online auctions. And since then, that's done ex- exceptionally well. We have a, a number of the public companies that are, that are using storage treasures. And it was, you know, it was it was a good idea. It was a good concept. Never thought that that was. Um, it, it was really the TV show that that made me focus on the process and see the opportunity and and act on it. But about the, you know, just before that was really the recession period. So I was in this period where I had a nice portfolio of a, I had a lot of stores more than I have today, and a lot of cash flow, and I hadn't seen it decline yet because it hadn't affected us. And I had nothing to do because you were not going to build something in 08, 09, 10, yeah. 11, although we should have. We all should have built everything then, bought everything, yes. built everything, but we were all uh, scared. But, you know, if you back up a little bit, that change in the internet happened at the same time. And since I was an early adopter, I had an advantage. I, I was outperforming the REITs in every metric. I was outperforming public storage with my little portfolio of stores in, in, in every other, whether it was reviews, whether it was social media, whether it was website, you know, visitors per store, I, I, I was beating them across the board. And the, you know, this is a, this is a quote from a, a recently uh, retired REIT CEO that, that the internet, the internet was the great equalizer. Uh, and it was in that time, but then it became the great divider. And that was about that same time. And as all these, you know, partners came to me and opened Komodo, um, it became clear to me that you couldn't play in this space any longer 
or you couldn't avoid disruption by working independently or staying small because we are we are a commoditized product uh you know a commodity is a is a is a is a need-based product that's interchangeable for another product like a bushel of corn can be exchanged for another bushel of corn a 10 by 10 storage space can be exchanged for another 10 by 10 storage space if so if you have you have four corners and three storage facilities on those corners to the consumer provided the you know one facility is not falling down product seems pretty similar so what's going to make the difference in the buying decision you know is it going to come down to i can turn in right to that one or left to that one or is it going to be a way to distribute your product more efficiently and in many commodities that distribution efficiency is a differentiator so in looking for those those differentiating methodologies, I realized it was going to be expensive and I couldn't do it 10 stores. I couldn't do it 20 stores. I couldn't do it with 200 or 500 stores. I felt that, that the goal was thousands of stores collectively working together. Hence the, the concept of, of store local, a collective that not only did things that a lot of co-ops do with, with buying power and, and sharing ideas and best practices and trying to be better at our at our business but i realized that intellectual property was going to be key going forward so we invested heavily in intellectual property and, and technology at that time now this is important because this is kind of as you're hearing the story the entry to how we met we i was in a totally different industry that had gone through the same process years prior as in technologies came in we were in a brokerage business where the the uh the industry had been split apart where the uh, you had lots of mom and pops and technologies came in and allowed us to do the same things that the large boys were which allowed consolidation to happen and we saw this and we went through this and we lived through this and we it would played to our advantage massively. We were able to consolidate and buy other firms and we were able to grow. That ended up petering out and kind of stopped. And then we had the recession and we'd owned a couple storage properties, but nothing really major, they were two small ones. And we had an all cash business in the recession, so we were doing really good. But then we looked at the storage industry and said, man, this industry is ripe for some massive change and there's a lot of people that are not prepared to take advantage of this change so we got already we put a bunch of capital together and we had this big plan where we were going to take advantage of the the consolidation like a lot of other people saw in this industry and in our other in the insurance was the prior industry that we were in when we were talking to you we still are in fact and we were talking to you but we were part of something called the UBA. It was a United Benefits Advisors, and it was an association where we all came together. And then we got to use technology to that we all purchased at mass and got it cheap and allowed us to compete. So as we broke into this industry and storage industry with all these dreams and everything like that, we were actually kind of shocked because there were not a lot of people that we thought got it. They were either denying what was coming, they didn't see it, or we felt they didn't even understand their own industry. So we were actually at a conference and we talked to somebody that mentioned Lance and brought Lance up to us. And so, you know, we walked in all rip roaring and we'd already been buying up stuff and 
We're building out the framework to how we believe we're going to take over the world. And it was funny because we, we had our meeting with Lance and we walked away from that meeting and it was in the recession and we'd walked away out of that meeting and said, this is the only guy that we felt knew what was going on. And Lance told you, told us, you're like, yeah, we're doing this co-op thing and we're, we're in. It was just immediate. We, we knew the value and we knew what it meant, what was coming to the industry. Um, and it wasn't that easy starting out though. For us, we saw it because we'd lived through it. We'd already been through the technical re revolution through another industry and how that spurred consolidation and how there were benefactors and there were major losers. And uh, we had benefited and we planned to do it in the other industry. But a lot of people in the industry, not only did, because we saw it because we were outside, but those that were inside, not only did they not think that it was coming, they didn't even understand really what you talked about. So when you started out and you were going to people saying, there's going to be a consolidation, this, you know, you're going to die. These are people that are still using yellow pages as their marketing. I, we know this because we were buying these people. How did you get this thing off the ground? Because how did I fail? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I, I think, it, well, you got to understand and people that, you know, if you're in the storage business and you're listening to this now, you know that a thousand stores, trying to get a thousand people with a thousand stores together to create a common goal. I mean, this is so undertaking and you created the largest in our entire industry. Um, and I, it, you did this though, too, without a lot of people even realizing the need. So walk us through like how this, how you built this out and how this worked. Well, I don't give up a lot of work to this day. Uh, Store Local is a, is, a, is a great company. It's growing. It's, I think it's about to take another large growth spurt, but uh, it's a difficult process. And, you know, this is, um, is going to sound a little harsh, but 10% of the people I would talk to would get what I'm talking about. 90% wouldn't. 10% were owned by public companies. 90% were owned by private companies. I wonder why. There's a, a bit of a pattern with real estate, commercial real estate owners, that I believe that when, when, when times are good, they believe that times are always going to be good. If things are working a certain way, they believe they're always going to work a certain way. That coupled with self-storage operators, for the most part, are pretty unsophisticated even in the in the real estate sector. So if you kind of think of the different real estate sectors, hospitality and multifamily and industrial and office and retail and, and you know student housing, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, Self-storage was kind of where you hung out if you were didn't know how to do anything else. It was kind of, it was not sexy. Uh, it wasn't very popular. And it really was a situation where uh, if you got into the business, you almost couldn't fail. Like it didn't really matter how good you were. You, and for people that are getting into it now, you, I don't think you realize how much of an understatement this is. When we, when we came, I have to be totally honest, um, I was a little embarrassed to do what I did. I was running a large consulting firm where we were dealing with 
$800 million in premium and dealing with C-level suites of massive companies. And we go to this conference, this is a long time ago, early 2000s, and I'm sitting next to a guy in overalls and there's maybe five people in the room. The guy that's speaking is talking about weird stuff that I don't even know that he knew what he was talking about. And I'm looking around, I'm in my suit and I'm like, I don't belong here. Like I'm really out of place. And then when we started buying facilities, it was I, I it, it was shocking up at until, what we were buying. Up until about five years ago, there wasn't suits. Yeah, you know, five eight years ago, I mean, you showed up in your flip flops, your shorts, your you were right at home, your your shirt untucked. Same way I still show up half the time. My no, first, I, I took off my suit in the early two thousands. I went and changed. I was like, "Wow, I'm a, I'm I, out of place here." I, I lived in I lived in Aspen, Colorado, for a number of years. And anytime you saw anybody anybody in a suit, you thought it was the bus driver. And, uh, <laughs> and I, that always stuck with me when I got in this business. But the first the first conference I went to was in San Diego. First one, I know nothing, right? And I sit down at a round table with this guy that's. I, I don't know if he had overalls on, but he may have. But I mean, he, he, you 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 wouldn't have expected anything, and so I started asking questions. And it, boy, the industry was very sharing back then. Uh, it's not so it's not so open today, but it was really sharing. Anybody would tell you anything you asked. You know, you'd go into any facility and just say, "Hey, give me your price list." They'd give it to you. That's how we did our, our our market surveys back then. And um, I'm sitting next to a guy. And, Heck, he might have even had some straw hanging out of his mouth he was chewing on. But I said, I said, are you in the business? And he said, he said, yes, sir. I said, I said, well, how many stores do you have? And he said, three million square feet. I said, where? He said, the Bay Area. Right? Now, that's probably a multi-billion dollar. No, yeah. probably that is, is a multi-billion dollar portfolio today. And it was like I was sitting with Bubba. Right? Yep. And that was that was the industry but if you think about if you think about a bunch of entrepreneurs who got into a business model that you pretty much couldn't fail in and now you have 50 million to billion dollar portfolios all over the place you start thinking you're pretty smart yep you start thinking you're really smart really smart yep and 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 that what got you to there is going to be what gets you yeah all the way and in reality most of the 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 real estate owners in the industry are not prepared to transition in, into what's happened and it and it's and it's not you know it's it's not a, a change in the real estate it's a change in the customer and the change in the customer isn't a result of what's happened in our real estate sector, although real estate has had some to do with it. For instance, hospitality. People expected to be able to go in and price comparison shop and looked at OTAs, which are the online travel agencies, the Expedias and, and Hotels.com of the world. And large companies started popping up. So this is, you know, look at look at the phone that, that half of you are holding in your hand or probably three quarters of you right now. That, that phone wasn't around 11 years ago. The consumer started changing, and it wasn't it wasn't self storage. It was it was Apple and Google and Amazon and Uber and companies that were changing the expectation of how business is done. 
Well, the self-storage industry didn't have the infrastructure to even provide any sort of outlet or customer experience or the ability to take our product and put it on those screens and make it transactional. And it was a very difficult thing. You know, a, a big a big chunk of the the owners of the real estate, but they learned how to text not too long ago. <laughs> I mean, that's how far behind they were, but also the infrastructure was behind. And on top of that, there's 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 some good news, although this, this party is over now, but the reason we weren't disrupted early on like retail was with the Amazons and, and, and hospitality and travel and airlines, et cetera, et cetera, it's because we have an incredibly easy business. We have probably one of the most simple business models on the planet. We, we sell a very simple product. We have, if you, if you thought of it as retail, we have very few SKUs and we have a handful of upsells. There is, you know, it's insurance, maybe going to a bigger unit, maybe going on auto pay, maybe buying some moving supplies. It's, it's really, it's really a very simple business model, but we didn't think about our business model and where the customer was, and we didn't protect our backside and we had very low transactional volume. So we didn't see disruption for a long time because for a tech company or, or a, a tech startup to look at a marketplace, they want to see the ability to create a large company as to where, you know, we may do 30 or 40 or 50 rentals in a month. And after you have a giant facility, you'll do a little more than that. But the, the average is going to be, you know, 30 rentals a month. So technology usually requires a lot of transactional volume. And early on in developing one of our applications, I had hired a, a gentleman who built Sabre, which is the global distribution system for the airlines. For, for At the time, it was American Airlines. And he had built the infrastructure for American Express and for Virgin, did just about everything for Virgin and for, for Branson. And, um, and we're sitting in a, in, a, in a meeting, in a tech meeting, and we were in Arizona. And um, we were talking about store local and getting into 5,000 stores. And, and, he, and he started reverse engineering our problem, the scale of our problem. And so he's doing the math. He's asked me the average size facility, the average number of transactions we do, bill pays, et cetera, et cetera. And all of a sudden, he pauses and he goes, geez. Because do you understand that the applications I build do as many transactions in a few seconds that you will do in a month? He said, you don't have a technology problem at all. He said, you have an infrastructure problem or a real estate ownership problem in not solving this. And that's when I started really looking at the, the transactional volume very heavily and, and very carefully. And I realized that, that we were fortunate to not get disrupted at that time, but we had to do something. We had to do something quickly. Well, getting a bunch of entrepreneurs who all are extremely successful, extremely wealthy, to believe that things are going to change was nearly impossible. So our, our first high-level consultants were like the gentleman I just mentioned, or hiring people from Booz, was it Booz Allen Hamilton or Booz Hamilton Allen or, you know, one of the biggest agencies in the world that their background was in change management. And how do you, how do you change the 
the thinking of an entire industry because that's where I had to start. I had to literally start from that point and start to try and educate the industry on what would happen. I think one of the first big white papers I wrote was cabs, cubes, and corn. And the hypothesis was what was going to happen when we lost control of our data and what was going to happen with the aggregation and that our, our product was, was really a commodity and what efficiencies would we need to, to do business as a commodity. But that was an extremely difficult task. It was, uh, it took, it took five years probably to start to get people to think that way. And in all honesty, I would say, did I, you have I some failed. early adopters? Sure. We, yeah, again, you know, a certain percentage of people will will get it and follow. You know, some early adopters exactly what they are. They're the innovators, right? They're yep. even before the early adopters. So the innovators and early adopters, they'll 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 move much quicker. The the innovators are the hard ones to get, or maybe the easy ones to get if they believe your messaging. And we we were able to bring people together. And at the time, the idea was the only thing that, that they could focus on, even, even though they were thinking more creatively than, than the average real estate owner, they were thinking greedy. It was cheap leads. Like, how do we get cheaper leads? Well, cheap leads is a very complex problem to solve. And, and even though I was laying out the roadmap to do that five or six years ago, I was practically run out of the industry for, for even presenting the ideas or the concepts because everybody was afraid of change. They didn't understand it. They didn't think that, that they could be disrupted and they didn't want to hear it. It was, it was just all the way around. Well, what, what finally turned the tide was a combination of the, the, the predictions, the speeches, standing on stage, the white paper. And I had about a four or five year run of, of making a lot of predictions of what was happening in the industry and how it would affect us. And as it played out, particularly over the last 18 months, uh, it was almost like I wrote a movie script that was filmed. And in the last 18 months, essentially our entire supply chain in our industry has been bought horizontally and vertically. So now ex explain that real quick. When you say supply chain, yeah. talk, talk to people about what that is in our industry and and how that works for so somebody looking in says okay when when you say supply chain who's buying and, and what is the supply chain that they're buying private equity is why is it come important? In. private equity has come in and bought up the supply chain and the supply chain that i'm referring to are the systems and tools and services that that we rely on to provide our service and our product so think of it as the insurance companies the credit card processing companies the software companies, the agencies, the the the, the marketing companies, uh, the 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 handful, and, and again, we're fortunate we don't have a hundred vendors that we rely on. The access control companies, uh, we don't have a hundred vendors that we rely on to provide our service. We may rely on a hundred vendors to build the product with all the various trades, but once it's up and running, there's a handful of key functionalities to run our business. Well. Those are the companies that had really amassed the greatest amount of data and the greatest amount of market share, whether it was online or within the transactional volume and software that they could aggregate together to make inferences and take the data and make it contextual and understand, you know, where are the more efficient places to spend to find customers and how do you how do you 
distribute your product more efficiently? How do you take our empty 10 by 10 that if you build a facility or own a facility, you're trying to figure out how do I take that empty space and put it in front of a customer when they need it and it not want it, need it. And so the predictions came true. The, the credibility has come along with the, the predictions. And we realized that to keep up with the, the technology, we were going to need to recapitalize, form another company. Uh, so we basically did a merger between the, the technology assets within Store Local and a new startup that was recapitalized called Tenant, Tenant Inc. And the, the, the tagline for Tenant Inc. is renting reimagined. And that's, um, and that's exactly what it is, figuring out the ways to meet the customer where the customer's at. So we're reimagining the way we've done it in the past and getting to that baseline customer expectation now of doing business. And where's it at now? Tenant Inc. is, is a new startup. Uh, it's doing extremely well. It's based here in Newport Beach. We have, uh, as a disclosure, I am one of the owners of Tenant Inc. Yeah. So, yeah, HA is a, is a supporter and investor of, of, of Tenant Inc. And, and a user of its products as well as, as, as I am. The first company that I founded was Storage Outlet. So that's, that's where this whole thing started in, this, in, the, in the storage industry. And Storage Outlet still exists today. Um, Pretty much with the exception of a couple uh, R&D startups I did to figure a few things out. Uh, all, of the, all of the companies I founded still exist today and are moving forward and successful and, and all slow growth. You know, this is not a, this is not, uh, a get rich quick industry by any stretch. I do have those stories of facilities that leased up in unbelievable time frames and, and I have stories of of facilities that, you know, uh, as an investor, I did just fine as the person that put the deal together, you know, seven or eight years to start seeing a return. So this is, this is a business where if you stay focused and you keep doing the right things and, and you're patient, uh, you'll find out that you end up in an extremely good position with a, with a, with a business model that has very high margins and extremely high margins compared to the competition, which is why private equities come in, right? I mean, it's simple economics and, and, and market conditions. If if a certain sector and any business model and in, in commercial real estate we're talking about has significantly higher margins than the others, well, somebody's going to come in and say that economically doesn't make sense. How do we equalize those, those returns? And it may be by REITs buying everybody up. Uh, and driving competition out, or maybe by people coming in and taking margin away by owning the, the services that we use to run our businesses and it driving the cost up. It's not a get rich quick, but it's to me, it's like a get rich guarantee. If you do it right and you know, you're choosy and do good deals, not bad deals. Now, the competitive landscape has changed, obviously, but still, when you're dealing but when you're dealing in other sectors, you know, self-storage has such a bright future, but it doesn't just have a bright future because of the economics of it, because I, I think there's a lot of parallels between self-storage and hotels. And I have a friend that owns several hotels. And when I see what they're doing and how technology has changed them and brand awareness and things, there, there's a lot of comparisons. But 
you know, how, or how much margin they've lost or as, how, as a result yes. of, of other people solving those problems. Exactly. So. And so this industry later down the road, we've had an opportunity to say, hey, we're going to provide alternative options to that that happened in the hotel industry that no one really saw coming at all, which and it was way too late by the time anybody realized, which I think that's not the case here. I think things like store local and tenant ink, this, this, these are options that allow people to remain independent owners, have success, success, create income and build wealth on their own. They get, they can do this and not, you know, and still gain the upside and be in the awesome business that we like that is self storage and it create a successful plan. Um, in fact, too, for us, you know, it op offers a way that you may be like going, okay, all this technology talk, right? This, I don't know a lot about this. Well, in the current situation, if you weren't really in and you didn't know how to do or what to do and stuff, you, you could be, you know, up the creek without a paddle really quick. But very quick with organizations now that you can say, listen, this is why I'm here, right? I mean, that's reason we joined when we first joined in it was technology we need help on the technology um and those resources didn't exist five years ago and what 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 i think is exciting i always see opportunity um i think that there's as much opportunity today as ever it's just not simple you have to you have to think it through you have to know and 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 don't feel like you're getting picked on if, yeah. if, the, if the listeners want to open up a shoe store, technology is going to be a part of it. I don't care what business you're going to get into. No. Technology is going to be a part of it. And, and it's going to change things always. And that, the only thing you should realize is that change is consistent. <laughs> it's the only consistent thing. Change. And, and two, not only that, but that's where the opportunity is. In, in fact, with a lot of these technologies that are developing in many ways, you have a competitive advantage that you didn't have before. Everything from sourcing deals, finding deals, operating in other markets to, you know, finding people that you can work with and help. And there's, there's just a lot of opportunity and it's exciting. Now, I think you got to chase the right things though. And the market does change quick fundamentals of business don't go away and those are what need to be focused on and that's what technology should aid getting the right person at a right cost into your business doing a transaction and reinvesting that cash flow in a profitable manner and um, and underwriting underwriting the model has probably changed really drastically we we underwrote all of our deals exactly the same 10, 15 years ago. Everyone, yeah. you know, we're gonna lease to a certain percent within 18 months and we're gonna stabilize and we're gonna refi, blah, blah, blah. And our, our, our marketing budgets and our marketing channels were all the same, they were all simple. That model is gone with some exception. You, you may go into a tertiary market and you may you may find success with with technology of underwriting a lot of the marketing channels not that dissimilar but the upfront cost of the technology is going to be more if you go into a first tier or a primary market 
your underwriting better look very different. The, the, the cost to, to lease the project, to stabilize the project, to maintain the, 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 the renter base is going to be drastically different. And that's where I've seen the, probably some of the most successful real estate developers, even partners of mine that have done deals. They've gone into, for instance, Miami, strong, Southern Florida. And uh, early on, I'd look at their performance and I'm like, whoa, like you really think that's your, your marketing budget? You know, you better put another zero on that because that's not gonna cut it in a hyper-competitive market. You so, so how do you avoid, because this is an awesome topic. When you're underwriting, what are the biggest mistakes that you see and how do you avoid them? I would say that it is that if, if you are, if you are developing in a, in a, and I call them hyper competitive markets. I'm, I'm pretty fortunate living in Southern California because I'm next to the most hyper competitive market, probably Los Angeles. Uh, although it's, it's hard to bring on new supply. So it's, it's hyper competitive from an existing supply that's there and, and the customer acquisition cost. If, if you came in as a new operator, a single store operator and built in downtown Los Angeles, you know, you probably be on page three for the rest of your life on Google, you know, you might as well be a dead body there. So, so how are you going to reach those customers? It's going to be through paid spend because anybody can play in that space, but it's really easy to, to use tools to find out what those paid spends look like. Well, who cares? What if, what if, what if, um, what if it cost me $20 to get each customer to come look at my site one time? Well, if I have a poor performing site, funnel, conversion process, management, call center, people, training, et cetera, et cetera, that cost is extremely high because you need to close those deals to create an ROI that makes sense. You can't spend $2,700 for every customer you get when they're worth $2,200. So the cost of acquisition when you're okay, when you're customer, underwriting customer acquisition, yeah, customer acquisition. When you're underwriting this deal, because uh, I would agree with you, I think this is the biggest place where people fail. I, I I speak a lot about understanding the acquisition costs in your model, and two, valuing correctly the customers that you're getting in. And I know that a lot of people struggle with this when they're underwriting to do a build, let's say, and they're saying, "Well, I don't know what my acquisition costs are," or worse, which is my acquisition costs are in the building because I have a good location on the road. What should they be prepared for in the cost of acquisition? And, great, and how are they achieving and acquiring those tenants? Yeah, a great, a great location will cure some of those, those evils. Uh, if you're in a location that's at equilibrium or underserved and you have an extremely visible, easy to access, well-designed site, you might do, you might do fine. Those sites in primary markets are unicorns anymore. Yeah. They're rare. Let's talk about real ones. You got storages opening up right alongside you in the city somewhere. So what you're, what you're talking about is one of the most complicated problems to solve in technology and marketing. And it doesn't matter whether you're fortune 50 or it's your first storage facility. And that's attribution and understanding the cost of the various channels you're using to acquire your customers. And um, one, of, one, of the, um, one of the mentors that uh, 
I had brought into the industry and taken advice from was the guy that invented retargeting back in Yahoo in the days. Like, so he's the guy that he, he really invented paid search. Then he went to Google and he ran paid search, right? So this is a, this is an extremely high enterprise level marketing uh, guy, smart guy. And, and the company he has now, uh, I think it just merged with another big company, but he's dealing with the largest organizations in, in the world uh, in this particular space. And he has an exercise that is really interesting and it's something for you to think about and think about how you solve. What he would do in, in some of his early meetings is he would bring into the boardroom the heads of all the divisions. So you're dealing with a big company like Verizon or, or whoever, his, that's one of his clients, right? So he'd bring in all the marketing departments. Okay, so there's, there's magazine, there's newspaper, there's television, right? There's digital, right? And, and just go down the list of all the channels that they're looking for their customers on. And he would hand them all pieces of paper. And he would say, division heads, I would like you to write down the amount of revenue that your department generates for this company. And so his assistant would collect them all up and she would add up all the numbers and she would look at them and she'd go, this is absolutely fabulous because this room is responsible for $47 billion of revenue. And it's really amazing because you guys only have 30. Fortune 50 companies, Fortune 500 companies really did not know from channel to channel, department to department, really how much money they were generating. This is, these are recent studies too. This isn't, this isn't going back 20 years. We're talking in, in, the, in the last three, four, five years. And that tells you how complex it is to, to understand how your customers are coming to you, right? Customers are finding us and doing business with us different ways. And, and how do you know, right? When a customer pulls into your, to your store and says, oh, I just drove in. Well, you know what? Maybe they um, all of a sudden had a need for storage. It's not top of mind. You don't realize that there's, you know, four times more storage facilities than McDonald's. They're on, you know, a, a lot of locations. And they go online and they're like, oh, yeah, I remember that place. It's right down the street from where I live. You know, and a week later they're pulling in, and oh, I just if, if, even if your manager is is asking and collecting, oh, I just I just you know I drove in, you're in the neighborhood. Well, it might have been a paid ad that you did, it may have even been a paid ad for a competitor that they looked at, and they got in the car and were driving to that competitor. They may have even made a reservation at that competitor, and because there are so few brands in our industry, that you know, oh, there it is. They might not even remember the name when they get the car. But they might go, oh, there's one closer. Maybe I pull in there. I was, you know, I was talking to an operator and they're like, and we we're talking about inbound calls. And they're like, oh, yeah, our inbound calls are, you know, solid, things like that. Ed, he goes, but, you know, I know you say Internet's taking out a huge portion of how customers are finding us. But he goes, I got to tell you, most when I answer the phone and, you know, we say, yeah, great. Um, how'd you hear about us? And they said, Oh, I drove by your facility. And he goes, they're drive-bys. And I'm like, oh, how'd they get your number? And he stopped and he kind of thought about it. I'm like, do you think maybe they drove by and said, hey, I can that Keylock storage there. Uh, hey, Siri, Keylock storage number, you know, on the phone. They still got it on 
everyone likes. But you're yeah, right. They don't it even was, remember key lock. They just or they just know, say storage. storage exactly. Storage. Whatever popped up, and then they call you. But it's multiple transactions that are happening to these customers at once. Right? It, it isn't. It's not just all of a sudden just the internet. It's just not the drive-by. It's a combination of these sequences together. And and understanding what your spend is to get those customers and, and, and what life cycle your company is. The, the, the tradition in, in our industry um, was pretty simple. You know, we would spend what we think we needed to spend to stabilize, and then we would cut back that spend. And that's still, by the way, most of you will probably do the exact same thing no matter what we say. You're gonna, you're yep. gonna do this and, oh well, too bad for you. Um, and our, we're, we're a high margin business, but the margin is in the top end. So when you open a store and you have no customers, the first customer you get, you're losing a million dollars, you know, $2 million, $3 million, $8 million that first customer. Yeah. And as the facility starts to stabilize, every customer becomes more valuable. So when you're up at 90% occupancy, all of your costs are covered. The value to you of that customer is far greater than the customer when you were at 50, 60, yeah. 70, 80, 85, even 89%. So if you think about those customers that are even more valuable, why are you shutting off the spend? Because you're making more margin with those customers. And if you run into a situation where you just don't have any more units or a certain unit size is, is gone, then it's a rent game, right? You, yeah. you being there is there. I, I have a I have a facility in Chino. I I, I mean, I've had two facilities hit a hundred percent in my career, uh, and both of them have hit a hundred percent multiple times. This particular facility has done it so many times I can't count, and we keep raising rents, and we keep raising rents, and honestly, we're obviously not raising rents hard enough because now the highest margin customers. I'm willing to spend a bunch of money to get that customer, but if I don't have a space, what happens to my conversion? If I have one small unit, one giant unit, and they're in the in the in the average, they need 115 or 117 square feet, right? Yeah. You know, they need a 10 by 10 or 10 by 15 or whatever's going to fit their their need within our product stack. You're not converting, so you're spending all that money. Yep. And you're not. You're driving somebody into your funnel, and you don't have something to sell. You don't have the product. You don't have a product. So uh, you have to keep a consistent product stack throughout your facility so that you can meet a customer because you don't know when they come through that funnel whether they need, and sometimes they don't know whether they need small, medium, large, extra large unit. Yeah, uh, They don't always know, and they certainly don't know how long they're going to be there. Yeah, um, they, 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 they just think it's a short term. I'm going to get in and out. Five years later, they're still they're still renting at your facility. We. We had a, we bought a facility and the guy was so proud. He's like, I've been a hundred percent full for like four years. And I was just like, Sell okay, me. where, 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 where do I sign here, here, here? What do you want? It doesn't matter. Just take it. This, I want this. So, you know, we're talking about 
a lot of we've obviously covered so much territory we're talking about everything we're starting to get into dynamic pricing and things like that but what what i want to go back to real quick here is some people i know or not go back to i want to move on to real quick here because i know some people listening to this right now is like oh i know how to solve all these problems i'm just going to call a REIT and have them manage it pros downsides let's walk through the history of third-party management first of all because if you've been in this space for a long time you know that really wasn't a huge thing until not so long ago and um it's a good it's a good topic uh-huh and now a lot of people are maybe trying to look towards it and weigh whether they should go this way or not so a huge fundamental change in third-party management has happened over the last 10 years really maybe 15 but what what what's changed is real estate was operated um, very simple. The the investment side of real estate handled something called asset management. Asset management made a lot of key decisions. Uh, are we going to refinance the property? What bank are we going to choose? How much insurance are we going to carry? Uh, you know, big big financial decisions that that we thought were key. And then we hire a third-party management companies sometimes to keep the employees in uniforms and hopefully trained and keep the, the lights on and the lawn mode and the landscaping looking good and the place swept out and clean and blah, 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 right? Make the property look nice. That was the model that, that worked for a lot of years. But as it became more sophisticated and the larger property management companies came in, primarily the REITs, a couple things happened. One is the REITs did a really good job at change management, the same skill set that I was using. And their focus was in the financial institutions. And what they were what they were doing with their change management is getting the the the, the people with the money to believe that if one of these REITs weren't managing the property, the owner or the developer could not compete. So now as a small operator, you may go to to finance a, a, a get construction like a construction loan on a piece of property, and they're going to ask you who's managing it, what REIT, and in some cases, what what REIT's going to manage this for you. And what happened is the lines got extremely blurry between asset management and property management, and property management started taking over a lot of the roles that asset management would would take in the past. We used to make the decisions on the credit card processing companies, on the insurance companies. And then when tenant insurance became a, a, a great revenue source, we ran that. Well, the property management companies started integrating that into their systems and taking money from those various channels. So it's it's very complicated when you, when you interview a third-party management company that says, we'll do it for 4%, 5%, 6%, 7%. To really understand what that means, because some some public companies that that claim six percent on an average facility, four hundred eighty-seven units, uh, uh, occupancy today of ninety-two percent, a dollar thirty average rents, and you apply their cost structure over that property, it's fourteen percent. That's a lot of money. Now our margins are high enough where. You know, some investors go, well, geez, I'm making money. I guess this is okay. Well, you, too, you're not also including, though, fees 
all these ancillary things that a lot of them are taking. Well, that's that's how they get from yeah, that. They tell insurance. you they tell you oh, six, yeah, yeah, six and they get to fourteen. Fourteen through those, and and you and you don't and and you don't see it because you don't understand yes. where those those models are coming from. There's there's two schools of thought in this industry, and I don't I don't believe in just following either one. I try to follow both. Our margins are so high that there's a lot of people that just say, you know what, throw more revenue in. They're going to make a lot more money. And that's true. And the REITs, that's what they play. They acquire, very few of them develop, some of them do, most of them just acquire, throw more money on the front end because the margins are so high, we'll work it out on the back end. Well, they have systems that are proprietary and they can operate pretty efficiently. But for the third party business they do, they're taking a lot of that margin. The other school is this is a game of pennies. And I believe that very much so. Um, if you can raise your rent a few cents, it's well, meaningful on an NOI, yes. a stabilized property. Yes. It's a game of pennies. So if you can raise more money or reduce your cost, that changes the valuation of your property. The, the, you know, I'm sure AJ's talked about this, but we're valued on, on, on NOI or net operating income. And there's a multiple of that that determines the value if you buy or you sell or you finance or you refi, any of those things. That's how your property's judged. It's not that, you know, you're thinking, well, I'm going to build this thing out of concrete and, and gold plate it. Doesn't make it doesn't a difference. Um, you know, you can't build something that's just a piece of crap. Uh, that doesn't work. But but if it's a if it's a even a below average build, you're still going to get valued the same way with the guy with the gold plated doors, or 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 the 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 guy that pours a 12 inch concrete, you know. Uh, drive aisle because do you have a that, higher margin and higher income? They're going to pay more for your property. Yeah, it, 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 that's that's where the value comes in. Yep. And unless your property ends up being in a location that has a higher and better use, it's going to become a high rise. It's become a Nordstrom's or a hospital or or you know uh, in an eminent domain. Uh, the freeways coming through something like that. Then you can take that model and and, and toss it in the trash. But those are total exceptions you absolutely can't predict those you will go broke if you're if you're building on that model um, so you have to think offensively and defensively and you have to think about the efficiencies in that PL because most of the the disruption in our industry right now is in the areas that hit our PL. they're the supply chain aspects of running our business so if it costs more to process my credit cards that hurts my NOI. If it costs more to get leads, that hurts my NOI. Now, if I pay a little more for doors when I'm building a facility because I want a, a higher quality door or a better roof, or I'm, you know, I envision being in this industry the rest of my life, I want to, I want to put a longer term roof on, or maybe upgrade the office. That's all in the upfront capitalized cost, and you get to depreciate those things. There's a lot of advantages to that. Um, those don't hit your those don't hit your PL every month that make up the value of your company at the end of the day. So allowing a a third party to come in and start dictating those areas to you and, and to give you an idea of how sensitive our our business model is that the the normal storage performa, people talk about a three to four percent NOI growth every year. Now the industry's done better than that, but people rarely underwrite above that. If 
if I can, if I have a stabilized property and I can cut 100 basis points, 1% off of my credit card processing, I pick up about 3% in a line, which is 100 basis points. So that's how sensitive the pennies can be. Likewise, if I'm paying an extra 100 basis points, maybe I break even that year. So even though our margins are, are, are high, our valuation is very much affected by that, that P&L. And the disruption we have in our industry right now is is hitting that is hitting that PL. And you need to consider those those scenarios when you're choosing how you're gonna operate the facility or you know how you're gonna conduct business going forward. And and at core, what this really comes down to, this is this is I'm gonna break it down another way. Um, it, it's data. And and if if you truly um, own your data, which is an interesting concept because the people listening are probably hoping to build or buy or they already own a facility. Well, the NOI, right? We've talked about the, the P&L. Well, the, 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 the revenue is being generated by somebody that has their stuff sitting in that 10 by 10 unit. Well, the only relationship you, you, you truly have with that customer or that tenant is data. You know who they are, you know all the information on them, how you're gonna build them. And if you don't control that data, you can't make business decisions. And real world example with that that's that's happening right now in the marketplace and disruption is, you know, you saw t- today Zuckerberg was in front of Congress, Congress. all day just mm-hmm. getting grilled, you know, he's. Facebook is now to blame for all the polar bears dying and everything else in the world, right? Yes. And, and, and you know, Congress is, is going after them, but one of the things they're trying to do is cryptocurrency. Well, along with cryptocurrency is probably banking. Along with banking is going to be disruption in the, the merchant processing space, how we pay bills. And I think that a lot of his partners have dropped out. They might not want the heat. They also might realize MasterCard dropped out of his deal. They might realize, huh, if he's successful in this, he may cut margin out of our business model, who take two to three percent out of our business, which is really unfair because we are the best in class to the banks. We rarely fail. We rarely have issues with our merchant accounts. We don't have people stealing credit cards and going renting five by fives. You know, they go to Best Buy and buy a big screen TV. So we're, we're very low risk, but yet our prices don't always reflect that with those merchants. Well, now you have Apple and, and Facebook and Amazon and Google all moving into banking. Apple's obviously already done it. You've all seen, you've all, you've all seen that. And they're, gonna, they're big enough to do it. They're big enough to be successful. Walmart tried to do this 15, 20 years ago, and DC ran them out. The lobbyists, the banking, the banking lobbyists just ran them out and said, "Yeah, so what? You're Walmart." They crushed them, and they killed them, and they couldn't do it because they knew that if they started their own bank, they would take their margin, right? So now you have companies big enough to pull this off. You know, th- these companies I just mentioned—they're going to succeed. They're going to disrupt that model. So now let's fast forward couple years and you're sitting there with a nice stabilized storage facility and Amazon's new merchant processing system or Google or Facebook or Apple's 
is a huge advantage to you in the cost structure. You get to shave 100 basis points from you know whoever you're using, Transverse yeah. or Thesis or whoever it is. Right? Yeah. Doesn't matter, right? Yeah. Doesn't matter. But guess what? If you don't own your data and you can't give that to the merchant, you can't take advantage of it because the person that is controlling your data may be conflicted and say, no, you have to use that one because either they own it or they have a partnership with them. And that's just one simple example. You can go down a number of key supply chain members that that we utilize to run our business and you can't participate. Well, you know, you're seeing what's happening now with, with the valet storage people coming in. They may or may not disrupt us, but if they become additive to our marketplace, meaning that we still own the real estate, they want to store stuff with us. If we can't expose our data, we can't do business with them. UPS just announced they're in the storage business just a week ago. I met with the president of UPS early on in forming Store Local, studying their 5,000 UPS stores and talking to them five years ago about the model that they just are coming up with. I talked to the head of their innovation committee just a year, year and a half ago about this model that they're doing. I may, I may be to blame for this model that they're doing, but to me, these disruptions are unavoidable. They aren't things that we get to control, but if I can't adapt with the changing models and take advantage of these efficiencies that they may have, it may be the UPS driver that's bringing stuff to my facility. It may be taking stuff out of my facility, but if I can't access my data, I can't do business with them. I can't make the gates open. I can't make the doors open. I can't make my applications work work with them. I can't handle the transactions. I can't. Well, and you're sign held the hostage. So all hostage. of a sudden, not only are you held hostage, but that margin, all these vendors and all these people that work with us to keep our doors open to keep our business running, they're extracting from that margin. Yeah. They're wanting to take as much as they can. Which is business. And, which is business, and, and that's the fine. Right, they have the right that's to do totally it. That's totally fine. But the more that they own your data, the more they can extract from you. That's correct. So the idea, once again, of this owning your data, I think a lot of people don't really see the importance to it. Most and don't. No. It's, it's not until it really starts hitting the NOI, but at that point it's, too, it's late. too late because they already own it. That's yeah. why they're hitting your and raising costs because they know you can't go or do anything about it. And they know your margin better than you know it. Exactly. Because they have the data. They have the data. And they, they know go, wow, he's where your customers margin. are coming from. They know the best customers on and on and on and on. Now, real quick, talk about the solution to this owning the data problems and and really where this is played out in store local and what you've kind of come up with there. Yeah, I'm hypersensitive to staying in this business as a real estate entrepreneur and a real estate owner and, and trying to maintain my marketplace and my margins. And I know that I have to have unlimited, unfettered access to my data so that I can make business decisions on the fly that best suit my business. So what we're doing at Tenant is creating platforms that will expose our data, magnify the services that come into our industry, and distribute our product across multiple channels more efficiently. So, that, I mean, I can't go into all the details of that. It's certainly not in, in 60 minutes. But 
myself and the investors in our, our in our company certainly see the value of maintaining our data, controlling our data, and using it to interest us or to do business with people who align to our interests or provide services to us that make the most sense. And that's the you know the basic premise to the, the infrastructure that we're building to operate our, our facilities going forward. And, there, and there's a lot of automation that goes into that. If I start developing tomorrow, I'm going to be developing a completely different model with, with exception. I mean, there's, I always call them bluebirds. When you're in this business long enough, like the Reno deal, you know, one day I'm sitting there, I'm not looking for a deal and this bluebird lands on my desk and I look at it and I immediately knew it was a home run. Yeah. Instantaneously knew it yeah. and couldn't do a deal fast enough, did the deal. And, you know, 18 months later, we're, we're, we're putting permanent debt on and taking all the money out, blah, blah, blah. It's just a fabulous investment and it's, it's going to continue to be a fabulous investment. But you're not going to make a career just looking for those deals because you may look two, three years to find that deal. So you got to figure out where the market is, where you can play and how you're going to play. And the way those facilities are going to be operated are going to be very different. A lot of them are going to be a lot smaller, which is going to require automation because you're going to have to lower your operating costs and, and your HR, you know, your, your, your labor cost. And so you're going to just have to think about how you're going to do business differently going forward. Well, let's, and, and okay, let's break into this because now this, this brings up, and this is the crux of everything and what I really wanted to get down to. You talk about doing business going forward. You've built products and services for a landscape that was going to change and it changed and made it so those products and services could be adapted. Where do you see the industry now going? Where are you looking at to really kind of put the chips on the table and preparing for those changes and move? And what do facility, uh, current facility operators and owners, but also people getting in the business, what do they need to know and how should they position themselves? So that process started six years ago for myself in the last two startups. And this is 100% of what we started six years ago was, was getting to automation. And automation started at, at having control of our data to be able to use systems, design systems, acquire systems, build systems to, to run these facilities more efficiently. And I'll, and I'll give you a real world example. There's, there's been so many of them that have, that have hit me lately. The UPS is, is one, the, the clutter is one. I'm, I'm, I, I love the clutter concept, not because that they're going to take business from me, I love the clutter concept because somebody else, a large, uh, you know, a large bank, SoftBank, is backing them, pouring ridiculous amounts of money into a space that may or may not succeed. But what they're doing is they're changing the way the consumer thinks about a product, and we're building systems where if the consumer does decide that this is an efficient or a way to use our product, how do we do it with our real estate? How do we magnify the usage of our product? And I'll, 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 I'll lay out a few examples that are happening just all in the last three weeks. I had a one of the best interns I've ever had. His name's Arish, and a, a USC student. I don't know it wasn't his last day, but he was you know la his last week for sure uh, in our office. And he comes in in the morning, and he's got this big case of iced tea, and he's carrying it. It's like these are big cans of iced tea too. And he's like, boss, you got to try this iced tea. I'm like, okay, I guess I got to try the iced tea. Like, give me one. So 
I take an iced tea and go back to my office. And, and a few hours later, he's in my office for something. And I said, I said, Arish, why are you slinging iced tea? Right? He's a college kid. He's smart. He's an engineering student. And he said, uh, he said, oh, I'm a brand ambassador. I said, okay, that's great. He goes, isn't it great? I go, I haven't tried it yet. So well, you got to try it. Boss, this is the greatest iced tea ever. So I have the thing I tried. I go, yeah, it's good iced tea. Great, Arish. I go, where'd you get it? He said, a storage unit. Well, in, in with my model, now I'm you know immediately spinning. So I go, Arish, I go, how did you get the iced tea? Slack answered it and, and if those of you who don't know slack it's one of the most successful ipos recently it's a tech company that is it's really sort of a technology messaging system that most technology companies use if you think about your facebook messenger or maybe social media or whatsapp messenger you use that you may communicate with your kids or snapchat or whatever you're using these days to communicate with people it's it's a system like that, but specifically designed for really for for tech companies and other people use it. So now I'm, you know, I, I'm I'm like, no, how did you get the iced tea? How did you get it? He goes storage unit. I'm like, I, I got that, but how did you get it? And he goes, oh, I went to their website. I went to the the iced tea company's website and I applied to be a brand ambassador and they selected me and I get two or three or four cases a week to give away. Now I'm getting ready to put him in a chokehold and, you know, and start bludging him. And I'm like, Arish, how did you get the FNI's tea? You know, storage unit. I go, oh my God, how did you get into the storage unit? Slack. Now I'm really frustrated. I'm like, okay, you went to Slack. What happened? Well, they gave me the gate code and told me where the, where the, where the storage unit was. Like, okay, now I'm getting somewhere. So you go to the storage facility, you have the gate code, you drive in, you know the storage unit, right? Yeah, of course. I go, is there some dude standing in the storage unit holding up the iced tea, waiting for you to come? He's like, no. I go, how'd you get in the unit? He said, oh, there was, there was a Bluetooth lock on the door. I said, okay, how'd you get the Bluetooth lock? Slack. Now I am killing him at this point. <laughs> and, and I said, Rish, how did you open the damn lock? He goes, oh, an app that I downloaded from Slack. Okay, so now I'm, I'm peeling back the onion. I said, okay, I got it. How are they inventorying, right? Yeah. Right, there's, yeah. There's, there's trust in this. And he said, well, he goes, I use the app, I open the door. I take a picture of the inventory in the unit. I take what I'm supposed to take. I take a picture and I close the deal lock the door with the Bluetooth. So kind of like they do with the scooters where you park the scooter, take a picture of where you parked it as yeah. evidence of you. Good. All right. So my next question to, to Arish, again, who's sharp as hell is go get a hold of the corporate office and tell me how many storage units they have. Right. This is a small IT company. And he comes back an hour later and he said 90 units. And I said, go back and find out what markets they're in. He goes, oh, I already know. They're in the NFL cities. They're in the major markets. And so my next question to him, he already had answered because this guy finally caught on where I was going. I said, who else is doing this? Within an hour or two, he had found thousands of storage units that were being rented by companies that were using our industry to distribute their products. And what they were solving is last mile efficiencies. 
So if you think about the problem, the problem this iced tea company had is that they knew that they wanted to penetrate a certain marketplace and get these brand ambassadors, which is a very popular way to market, a very efficient way to market. And they had to get the iced tea in the hands of the brand ambassadors. Well, you could ship it right to his dorm room. What does it cost to ship a single case of iced tea to his kid's dorm room or three cases or five kids? It's probably 20 bucks a case to have it freaking delivered to his dorm room, right? Yeah. What does it cost to have a truck with a forklift come into the storage facility and drop four or five pallets of iced tea in a storage unit? And do they care about the cost of the storage unit? It's it's so insignificant to them. They're saving so much money on what you, you'll hear this a ton, last mile. The last mile delivery is massive right now yeah. in so many areas. It's massive for Amazon. It's massive for Target and for Walmart and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, this is, this is how our industry may be changing in that we thought of our product in, in, in a very, you know, one dimensional aspect of, you know, somebody moving and putting stuff in their storage unit. Well, how, difficult is it for these companies to not only access our inventory but manage that process there it's in in technology terms it's called a mashup you grab a bunch of technologies and you just sort of mash them and hack them together to solve a problem which works very well that's what this company is doing between bluetooth blocks bluetooth lock applications slack their website they're probably finding these storage units based on just saying, okay, we want to be in this market. Let's look for some storage units that are in that marketplace to get that efficiency that's, you know, within a mile of where these ambassadors are going to live. And they're figuring that all out. But it's incredibly difficult. Think about managing that. Think, forget about the, the one that had a thousand units. Think about the just the 90 unit. Somebody at that corporate office is managing 90 storage units in 35 cities where they're handing this stuff out and they're paying bills and systems that are horrendous. Their websites are horrendous. They can't, they can't aggregate all of those bills up into a single place. They can't open the doors. They can't hand out the gate codes. They're basically gaming our product to solve their problems. And we're not even aware of it as operators that this is happening in our space today. So how are we going to take our data, right? And our data in this case would be we have an empty storage unit available. It costs this much. This is how your application could access it. This is how your application could open the door. This is how we'll be comfortable as operators understanding who's coming and going and signing the necessary documents that ultimately are behind all these transactions that the lawyers have to make so that we're not taking on liability for this process. And how do we grab a hold of that market share? Well, as that market share starts to present itself, we better have the ways to adapt very quickly. Those are the types of tools and systems that we're focused on building. And that works with Amazon. That works with Uber. That works with, with big, big, big scale companies that can find efficiencies in our 50,000 you know, facilities scattered across the country when you break it down to the, to the smaller facilities. So those that can adapt will survive. Flourish. Yes. Not survive, flourish and beat out the competition and build product type. If you're developing product, build your product to be able to adapt to those use cases from day one because it doesn't 
cost you hardly any more to build the product correctly. If you buy a product and you retrofit it, and you buy the product, putting that cost into the purchase and underwriting is doable. If you have a product that's stabilized and up and running, it's very difficult to do. Particularly if you have investors, your investors are getting their 9, 10, 15% returns, 20, whatever they're getting. Yeah. And all of a sudden you say, you know what, we're going to dump three, four, five hundred thousand dollars in CapEx and, and we're not going to distribute money to you this year. They'll all go, oh, what? They'll freak wow. out, right? Yeah. 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 Well, what are we doing? Yeah. Like, no, business is good. Let's, uh -huh. let's not change. Yes. Let's not do anything. Yeah. And then you're kind of handcuffed in, in what you do. Now, if you're a sole proprietor and you own 100% of everything, which is very hard to do in this industry because it's expensive, yep. um, you can obviously you can control that. That's that's not the that's not the norm. Man, this was awesome. So much good information. I'm gonna go back through this, and I know I'm gonna have like 10 questions that will line up. So we'll we'll have you back on to dive even deeper into some of these topics, but. Thank you, Lance, so much for coming on. Anybody want to learn more of these things? We mentioned tenants, store local. Where can people reach out, find more information about the stuff? Where should they go? I'm easy. I'm Lance at tenanting.com, and you know I'm, I'm available. If, if uh, I hand you off to my assistant to organize something, I can do that. But reach out to AJ, and you know, he and I are in constant contact. So we're open. Our website right now, since we just merged the companies, is still under store local. Uh, and it'll, it'll it'll stay that way for a whole bunch of reasons until uh, Q2 next year. But we're really in a, in a mode right now of, of building. We're not in a mode of selling our products today. Uh, we're in a mode of building our products, but we do have a lot of products between store local tenant that are that are up and running. There's you know, 1,500 stores or whatever the name number is now that that are you know utilizing these various services and, and products today. Uh, but if you're if you're in the process of developing, we'll be ready before you. And uh, and if you're in the process of, of acquiring, we'll probably be ready before you. So if you already have something, we're probably not ready for you today. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. We appreciate you coming on. Thank you, Jim.